Good morning, everybody. So here it is, the big finale, the last chapter of the book of Genesis. About two and a half years ago, we started in chapter one, and here we are today at the end of the ch- end, chapter 50. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, the pew Bibles uh, in front of you are for your use. Uh, we'll be on page 45. And as always, if you have questions, you can send them to slido.com, hashtag RevCDA, and I'll do my best to try and answer them. Uh, but first, let's, uh, let's take a moment for prayer. God, I thank you just for the, the God that we see in your word, that you communicate yourself so truly to us, no matter where we are, no matter uh, how we come to you. Lord, we pray that that you would be known today, that hearts would be set free and healed, that we would grow in Christ-likeness. Lord, I pray that anything that I bring, any of my distractions, any of this that is not of you, Lord, that it would fall away and that your word would persist and remain and bear fruit in our lives. God, we love you and we just, we ask for your presence here. In your name, Jesus, amen. All right, well, this will be my fourth time teaching on Sunday, and every time I do it, it makes me uh, appreciate how much work goes into doing this week after week after week. Uh, after all, I only do it about once, maybe twice a year, uh, so it evidently takes me that long to prep. <clears throat> uh, but as I've continued to do this, there's one thing that I have been feeling deficient in, uh, and that is my overall lack of Marvel and sci-fi references. In fact, Scott, a couple weeks ago, got up here and nailed that criteria, and then as a bonus, added a Broadway reference. So I'm just going to have to step up my game. (laughs) All right, so I'm going to give it my best shot. Uh, We have a lot to cover, so let's dig in with a quick recap from from the whole of Genesis. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see a loving and communal God create everything and make it perfect in unity with himself. In Genesis 3, the serpent deceives Eve, her and Adam eat the fruit that God commanded them not to, and they lose this unity that they once enjoyed. We call this the fall. It is here that we are first introduced to the problem of sin and the question, can God be trusted? In Genesis 4, Cain kills Abel after his offering to God was not acceptable, and Abel's was. Genesis 5 through 9, we are introduced to Adam's descendants, and humankind continues to increase in sin and corruption, so God plans to kill them and start over with Noah who is the only righteous one left. God tells Noah to build an ark, and God floods the earth. It rains 40 days and 40 nights, and they float around for a while, and then the flood recedes. Noah builds an altar, and God sends sends a rainbow as a sign of the covenant that he would never flood the earth again. But Noah got drunk, and the whole sin mess starts over. Genesis 10 through 11, we are introduced to new nations following the flood, and they begin to build a tower in order to become gods themselves. So God confuses their languages, and uh, God confuses their languages, and this becomes the Tower of Babel. We are also first introduced to Abraham, Abram, and Sarai. In Genesis 12, Abraham, Abram, gets the first glimpse of the blessing God promised him, and then we follow him through the next 13 chapters, through the roller coaster that will be his his life. We see him re- repeat his mistakes by disobeying and distrusting God. And we see God's repeated faithfulness and generosity towards him. He repeatedly takes matters into his own hands, first by lying about his wife, Sarai, claiming to be her brother, and then by sleeping, or then trying to fulfill 
the covenant by sleeping with Hagar and producing his own heir. But through all of this, we see God's bigness, not only in sticking to the original plan and promise, but now also in blessing Ishmael. At last, Abraham, Abraham gets the son he was promised, Isaac. God comes to him in a dream and tells him to sacrifice Isaac, the miracle son that he just gave him. Abraham obeys, but God stops him at the last minute and provides another sacrifice instead. Abraham is blessed for a second time. We get a quick four chapters in 25 through 29 where we hear about Isaac and his life. He seems to follow in his father's footsteps, both in blessing and in disobedience. He becomes so rich that King Abimelech sends him away, but he also lies about his wife being his sister again. He has a, of sin, a set of twin boys, Esau and Jacob, and just like dear old dad, his unbalanced treatment of them leads to more dysfunctional family dynamics. In 27, Jacob and his mother collude to trick Isaac into giving Jacob the blessing intended for Esau. That is after Jacob convinces Esau to sell him his birthright for a bowl of soup. None of this, which is, none of, this of which is actually even necessary since Jacob was already prophesied to have the blessing over Esau. We then follow Jacob's story through chapters 27 and 39. He starts out as a prideful, scheming man, and he tricks his father, and then he goes to live with his uncle Laban. Along the way toward Laban's house, he dreams of a ladder reaching to heaven and is blessed by God. Turns out, once he gets there, that Laban is an even bigger schemer than Jacob. Jacob works seven years intending to marry Rachel, <clears throat> intending to marry Rachel, but is tricked into marrying Leah, so he works another seven years for Rachel. Jacob tries to sneak away after the Lord tells him to go back home, but Laban chases him down and they eventually make a treaty. In chapter 32, Jacob finds out that Esau is coming to meet him and decides to attempt to make amends. And that night he wrestles with God and is renamed Israel. He meets Esau and is reconciled with his brother. They part ways and Jacob settles near Shechem, but then he decides to leave after his sons murder all the men in that town in retaliation for, the, for defiling his sister. Jacob finally settles in Bethel, but on the way, he loses his wife, Rachel, during the birth of her son, ben, who is later named Benjamin. As we near the end of the book of Genesis, we have the story of Joseph, who appears in Genesis 37 as a 17-year-old favorite of his father, Jacob. Over the next 13 chapters, we see him sold into slavery in Egypt, then excel as a servant in the captain of the guard's house, only to be falsely accused and then imprisoned. While in prison, he again had God's favor and was successful. While there, he interprets the dream of Pharaoh's baker and cupbearer, which came true, but he was forgotten in prison for another three years until he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams and came up with a plan to help all of Egypt. He was then placed over Egypt, second in command only to Pharaoh, uh, only to Pharaoh. <clears throat> and then his brothers come to buy grain for him, but Joseph rec recognizes them and decides to test them before he reveals his identity. His brothers were afraid, and he reassures them and tells them to bring Jacob and all the family to Egypt where they can live safe from the famine. As Jacob ages, he calls Joseph to bring his sons and, and blesses them. And then Jacob calls all of his sons together and blesses them, commands them to bury his body in Canaan, and then he finally dies. So this is where we leave off. You start to see a pattern here that even though God chooses these men, they are really really flawed. We are needing a hero, and it's easy to wonder if this guy will be the one. Will he follow God? Will everything be made right again? Will the pain and sadness cease, and will we live once again with God in unity? 
But, this, but time after time, we see these heroes fail and screw things up, sometimes worse than before. Then, eventually, they die. We are continually reminded that sin has infected everything and everyone, and we are hopeless. We need a savior. So now that leaves us right where we left off in Genesis 50. Remember what I said about sci-fi references? Well, here goes. We end the book of Genesis with one of the last great protagonists dying. Then his son, the current hero, gets accused of treachery and vengeance. Then he dies too. Although Jacob's family is big, it definitely doesn't outnumber the stars or the sand. And to really top it off, we're not in the promised land. They're still foreigners in Egypt. Now granted, it's a nice part of Egypt, but as the audience, you start to think, this isn't what I thought God promised. And then the story is over. Or is it? Just like the end of Avengers Infinity War, <laughs> Thanos snaps his fingers and the heroes are gone. Then the movie just stops. All is not right in the world. But, in the case of the Avengers, we know there's a sequel coming, so there's kind of automatically some hope built into this. Well, actually, Joseph's story also ends in such a way that we can rest assured that it isn't over either. This isn't the end. There is hope as well. Hope that not only will God's promises come to pass, but since God is the one in charge, the results will be better than we can imagine. As we wrap up Genesis, we see God move in three big ways. Those ways are faithfulness, forgiveness, and hope. So let's get started. Verse 1. Then Joseph, leaning over his father's face, wept and kissed him. He commanded his servants, who were physicians, to embalm his father. So they embalmed Israel. They took 40 days to complete this, for embalming takes that long. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. All right, so we read at the end of the last chapter that Jacob had just died, and this one opens right where we left off as, this, as if there were no chapter breaks. We read that Joseph weeps and immediately starts the work of fulfilling his promise that he made to his father in 49. They begin pre preparing his body for burial. However, we read that Jacob was embalmed. Now, most of us are not new to this concept of embalming or mummification, as the Egyptians called it. Embalming is still a current practice here in the United States. It's used as a means of preserving bodies for burial and allows loved ones and family members to arrive to pay our respects. In ancient Egypt, it was actually a religious practice, and that, again, like I said, we call that mummification. However, in ancient Hebrew culture, this was not a common practice. In fact, this is the only chapter in the Bible that mentions of an Israelite being embalmed. Normally, the deceased loved ones were buried within about 24 hours. But in order for Jacob's last wish to be honored and to be buried in the promised land, this was a necessity. So that 70-day 70 70 day period they talk about was made up of 40 days of embalming plus a traditional 30 days of just actual mourning. This shows that Joseph and his family had actually become dear to the Egyptians and were valued in their land. Back to verse 4. When the days of mourning were over, Joseph said to Pharaoh's household, if I have found favor with you, please tell Pharaoh that my father made me, an oath, made me take an oath saying, I'm about to die. You must bury me there in the tomb that I made for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go and bury my father. Then I will return. So Pharaoh said, go and bury your father in keeping with your oath. Joseph doesn't go to Pharaoh directly. And we think this is probably because in his current state, he was just unpresentable to Pharaoh. 
Pharaoh was regarded as a deity in Egyptian culture, and in order to come before him, you needed to be perfectly bathed and adorned. We actually see this in chapter 41, where Joseph was shaved and changed before he came to Pharaoh to interpret the dream. So in this instance, it was likely as part of the grieving process for his father, Joseph would just have not been presentable in Pharaoh's presence. Instead, he pulls a personal favor from Pharaoh's household and makes the request through him. Verse 7, then Joseph went to bury his father, and all Pharaoh's servants, the elders of his household, and the elders of the land of Egypt went with him, along with all Joseph's family, his brothers, and his father's family. Only their dependents, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. Horses and chariots went up with them, and it was a very impressive procession. When they reached the, the threshing floor of Atad, which is across the Jordan, they lamented and wept loudly, and Joseph mourned seven days for his father. When the Canaanite inhabitants of the land saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a solemn mourning on the part of the Egyptians. Therefore, the place is named Abel Mizram. It is across the Jordan. So Joseph did this for his, so Jacob's sons did for him what he had commanded them, and they carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave at Machpelah, near Mamre, which Abraham had purchased as a burial property from Ephraim, Ephraim the Hethite. Okay, <clears throat> so this is not actually the dead hero like I said earlier. This first section shows God's faithfulness. He honors his commitment to Jacob. Jacob gets to see Joseph alive, but also he gets to see Joseph's children and bless them. Remember back in chapter 46, verse 4, when God says, Joseph will close your eyes or be present at your, birth, your death. Well, just before that, God also told him to go to Egypt. He said that he would go with him and make him into a great nation, and that he would also bring him back. The fulfillment of Joseph being with his father as he died as a signal, reassuring, that Jake, reassuring Jacob and Joseph of God's faithfulness. But this also would have been significant to the original audience listening in the desert hundreds of years later. If God was faithful and honored his word to Jacob, then certainly he will continue to honor his promises to Joseph and to us. Jacob, honored, or Jacob is honored by the most elaborate funeral procession ever described in scripture. Remember what it said? Pharaoh's servants, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt went along with Joseph's family, his brothers, and all his family. The Bible says it was a very impressive procession. And after they arrived at the threshing floor of Atad, they observe another elaborate seven-day mourning period. This display was so profound that the Canaanites take notice and rename the place Abel Mizram, which is actually translated the mourning of Egypt. Now keep in mind, back in 47, we're told that shepherds were detestable to the Egyptians. Yet they mourned for him like this. How is that for God to honoring his word? God continues to demonstrate his goodness and generosity by showing honor to Jacob even after his death. So this ends the story of Jacob. And although Jacob starts out as a de deceiver, or as his name means, supplanter, God continues to write his faithfulness all over the story. Jacob doesn't deserve it, but that's how God works. God's covenant is based on his character, not our righteousness or our ability to earn his favor. Isn't that great? 
All right, verse 14. After Joseph buried his father, he returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, if Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the suffering we caused him. Wait, what? I thought back in 45, Scott talked about the reconciliation. He talked about the climactic reveal where Joseph forgave his brothers. He talked about the importance of and some of the essential features of reconciliation. This was huge. Yet, after their father dies, the first thing that runs through their minds is, oh, we're doomed. They fear that, they fear that the only thing that kept them alive and kept Joseph from exacting his revenge was his love and his honor for his father. And now that Jacob is dead, they worry they have nothing to stand between them. It strikes me here that they've been holding on to this for such a long time. Somewhere deep, this feeling of unresolved guilt sat festering. He forgave them, and it would have been safe to assume that everything was fine. Wasn't it Joseph, the victim, who initiated it? They obviously had not received Joseph's forgiveness, at least not truly. He makes sure they're cared for and settles them in choice land near them. They received the benefits of Joseph's forgiveness and the privileges that came along with it. But here we see that they actually rejected his forgiveness itself, at least at some level. And I think the reason for this is actually pretty sad. In all the mention of their crimes and all the worry dialogue amongst themselves, it is never recorded that they ever once confessed their sin to Joseph or to their father. They acknowledge that they've sinned. In fact, in 42 and 44, they see, that is, they see it as the source of their punishment and trial. But acknowledging our sin is only a good start. This can be difficult. We try to justify and rationalize what we did or simply try to make sure that we don't take more than our fair share of the blame. So I give them a little credit. We tell ourselves that we had a good reason or that, we should have, that we've already paid the price. But acknowledgement, acknowledgement of sin shouldn't be the end of it. Zach said a few weeks ago, this isn't Jesus's way. But Jesus's way also doesn't heap shame. It sees sin for what it is, evil without excuse. His way brings it into the light to be dealt with once and for all and begins with confession. And that begins with confession. Proverbs 28 verse 13 says, the one who conceals his sins will not prosper but whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. We never at any point see them come to Joseph and confess. They could have said, hey, we recognize we did a terrible wrong to you. We hated you. We were jealous of you. We mocked you and despised you in your dreams. And because of our jealous hatred, we plotted to kill you. We threw you into a pit and let you sit there wondering if you were going to live or die. We had such disdain and disregard for you that we sold you as nothing more than a piece of property. And furthermore, we never see them confess to their father for lying to him for all those years, for watching him hurt and grieve the loss of his son while they sat there withholding the truth that would have given him relief and comfort. I'm sure the question, <clears throat> I'm sure the question of, hey, I thought you said Joseph was dead, came up pretty quickly after the re reunion celebration calmed down but we aren't told whether or not they ever discussed it with Jacob. And I think their behavior makes it seem pretty unlikely. In his book, 
praying like monks and living like fools, author Tyler Staten writes, the desperate need of our time is not for successful Christians, popular Christians, or winsome Christians. It's for deep Christians. And the only way to become a deep Christian is through the inner excavation called confession. The pathway to spiritual maturity is, is a descent, not an ascent. A maturing community is a confessing community. Not a church without sin, but a church without secrets. When we come in and out of God's presence in gathered communities with our deepest needs and secrets hidden, we are essentially saying, Jesus' victory is not enough. It's not enough for me. It's not enough for this. I just need more time. I can sort this out on my own. How do we combat this internal narrative that was planted in us at the fall that keeps us in a perpetual state of hiding and dressing ourselves up with choice fig leaves? Confession. And we see even now that instead of taking this moment to clear the air and their conscience, what do they do? Well, let's see. Picking back up in verse 16. So they sent a message to Joseph. Before your father died, he gave a command. Say this to Joseph, please forgive your brothers. Or please forgive your brother's transgression and their sins, the suffering they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, your father, of the God of your father. They sent a message. They didn't go in person, but they had someone else do it for them because they were too afraid. And besides, oh, and besides that, there is no mention of Jacob giving this command anywhere in Scripture. One thing about the Old Testament writing is that every detail is important. It is either added or omitted intentionally. And the author of Genesis would have included this detail, would have included a detail as important as the command to forgive the 11 brothers if it actually happened. Even more likely, this command would have been given directly to Joseph by Jacob, maybe even speaking it in the presence of many witnesses, including the brothers. Remember the pronouncement of blessing we saw in chapter 49? So why aren't we, the audience, told until now? Why wouldn't this at least be given to us, the reader, if it wasn't said in front of many witnesses? Well, I think we are told something here. And it has been told to us multiple times throughout the story, just not plainly. All throughout the story, Jacob's sons have been shown to be men of low character who will act as they please to try and save their own skin if caught. We did see a small glimpse of maturity in chapters 42 through 44 when they were tested by Joseph. They attempted to return the silver, and Judah offers his life in place of Benjamin's. But that was then. And now we see it here again, their familiar character. When things look uncertain, they jump right back to their old ways of dishonesty and deceit. So, in keeping with Hebrew narrative style, the author, the author is communicating to us that the brothers are just making this up. They fabricate this lie in order to secure their safety because they don't feel that Joseph can be trusted. And ironically, they try to leverage the name of God to help protect them when their actions clearly say that we don't trust Joseph or God's intent. Now, like I said earlier, distrust isn't a new concept in scriptures. It's the cause and the unavoidable consequence of our fallenness, and we have seen it all throughout Genesis. Like we covered earlier, Adam and Eve ate the fruit. Cain offered a meaningless sacrifice. Man tries to build the Tower of Babel. Abraham and Isaac both lie about their wives being their sisters. Abraham sleeps with Hagar. Jacob lies and schemes, stealing the blessing and the birthright. 
Joseph's brothers attack him and sell him as a slave. And these are just a few of the examples that we've already covered. All of these, all of the sins in the Bible, all of the sins for that matter are a result of us distrusting God. Whether we distrust his ability, his sufficiency, his interest, or any other of his attributes, behind every sin is the lie that God can't be trusted. Maybe their distrust is because they couldn't get past their own untrustworthiness to see that their brother was being genuine. Isn't that true? I mean, often don't we assume about others? Often doesn't what we assume about others say more about ourselves? We project our insecurities and negativities and suspect the worst of others, regardless of the truth. Have you ever done this? I know I have a lot. I'm getting better. Whatever the reason... They are to- whatever the reason, we are told that they thought it was Joseph's loyalty to their father, Jacob, that was the only thing keeping them alive, and that they thought Joseph might be biding his time, waiting for the opportunity to finally get revenge. That doesn't sound like the character that we've watched God develop, or that the brothers have even seen in Joseph themselves over the last few chapters. That sounds like the kind of character that plans to kill your brother, the kind of character that makes your brother wait in a pit while you figure out how to kill him or how much to sell him for. The kind of character that lies to your father for 13 years while he grieves his dead son. That sounds like their character. So what's Joseph's response? The end of verse 17 tells us, Joseph wept when their message came to him. He wept. Can I say something real quick? Joseph cries a lot. I don't know if you guys have noticed that. <laughs> twice during the testing of his brothers, then at his father's death, and now. And for somebody else who cries a lot, this makes me feel a, lot, a whole lot better. <laughs> if you don't believe me, you can ask my daughters, or my wife, or my community group, or Zach, or you get the point. The point is, is that the great men of Israel, that one of, if one of the great men of Israel is passionate to weep, then there must be something okay with it. And what I find interesting is that it's never recorded that he is crying in self-pity or frustration. After he's thrown in the pit, after he's sold into slavery, after he's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and thrown in prison, after he is forgotten in prison for years, nothing. Not a woe is me. But when he is confronted with things of deep significance, he lets loose. So why did he weep here? Potentially, it might be hurt. He could be thinking, is that how little you think of me? To someone who has forgiven them and is living under the assumption that they had reconciled, this would be a slap in the face. Joseph was a man changed by God and they couldn't see it. But instead, they were expecting him to be as treacherous and vengeful as them. Which, like we said, just portrays their character, not him. It could be the loss of the relationship he thought he had with them. Have you ever thought you reconciled a relationship only to find out the other person still harbored bitterness or resentment or fear against you? It leaves you questioning everything that you've experienced with them since. Did they actually mean it when they said they forgave me? Have they been feeling this the whole time? Will they ever trust me again? Will we ever be close again? It could be that he's reliving all the trauma of those 13 years between being sold into slavery and elevated to Pharaoh's house. Even though he forgave them, the trigger of feeling like an outsider might still be strong enough to bring back some pretty powerful emotions. Or it might simply be pity for his brothers, 
They didn't have to live like that all those years. Joseph clearly harbored no ill will, but they couldn't hear it the first time when he said, fear not. They didn't receive his reassurance, so they ended up living in the torment and fear that guilt and shame bring. If Joseph truly loved his brothers like it appeared he did, then then he would have been grieved to know that they had been living with these feelings all that time. Either way, we're not told what Joseph is thinking for the moment. We're left to interpret his thoughts and intentions as well as the cause of his tears. But I think it's pretty safe to say it's some combination of, of those or some of those. All right, verse 18. His brothers also came to him and bowed down before him and said, we are your slaves. There isn't even in time for response. As he's still processing the initial request, they run in and throw themselves at his feet offering themselves as slaves. That's kind of ironic if you think about it. The slave traders offering themselves as slaves. This kind of reminds me of the tactic that Jacob used in chapter 33 with his brother Esau when he was on his way to meet him. Remember the elaborate procession of gifts and servants that he sent ahead of him to soften up Esau before eventually bowing down on his feet and asking for mercy? Joseph's brothers send a message in order to soften him up and then follow it up by groveling at his feet and asking for mercy. But as we see in a minute, this is completely unnecessary. Verse 19. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me, but God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Wow. Are you kidding me? This isn't the same Joseph we saw back in 37. The one wearing the fancy coat, slandering his brothers and bragging that he would rule them someday. Now we see that Joseph is a man transformed by God. Contrast this with what we just saw a minute ago from his brothers who haven't really changed their wicked ways. However, this isn't the first time that we've seen Joseph as a changed man. Look back in Genesis 45, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to read through it kind of quick. Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of all of his attendants, so he called them out. Send everyone away from me. No one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers, but he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and also Pharaoh's household heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But they could not answer him because they were terrified in his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me, and they came near to him. I am Joseph, your brother, he said, the one you sold into Egypt. And do not be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me there, because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in in the land these two years, and there will be five more without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant in the land to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of the land of Egypt. Twice, Joseph is faced with the opportunity to take matters in his own hands and get revenge. And twice, he takes the same posture of trust in God's sovereignty that leads to forgiveness. Let's first look at that posture and then the result. First, trust in God's sovereignty. Look again at what he says in verse 19. Am I in the place of God? 
He recognizes that God is in control and he's not. He knew that God is faithful and God is sovereign. This mindset creates a trust in Joseph that allowed him to receive the wisdom to understand all that God has planned for the good of him, his family, and all the land. What a great place to be. Proverbs 3, 16 through 18 says, speaking of wisdom, it personifies her as a, as a woman, but it's speaking of her and says, long life is in her right hand, in her left riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant and all her paths peaceful. She is a tree of life to all those who embrace her and those who hold on to her are happy. This is not a perspective that he just came, with, came up with on his own. It was created in him by God through the trials he endured. He saw God move throughout his life all while trusting him. So the natural consequence of that posture is the right perspective. Awareness of the sovereignty of God in every situation, in every situation past, and the trust that he will be sovereign in the future. We'll see this summarized in a moment. But these two verses, 19 and 20, they basically summarize the book of Genesis. Bad things happen, people sin. We do things our own way and walk away. We covet, we murder and destroy what God created. But God, everything we planned or did for evil, he uses for good. Every evil and ugly and painful thing that has or ever will happen to us, God can use for his glory and for the good of us and for the good of others. Look what Paul says in Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for, God, for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. So, first there is trust in God's sovereignty. Next, we see what I believe is the result of that trust, forgiveness. God formed Joseph into a man of forgiveness as a result of the trust in the midst of the trials that God brought him through. When we trust that God is in control, we're free not to be. Trust in God frees us to forgive. We are free not to seek revenge and justice for ourselves, and we are free to allow God to bring justice and good for not just us, but others. So what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is simply defined as the cessation of anger and resentment towards someone for an offense. That's it. That means that a wrong has been committed, whether intentional or accidental and we choose to let go of the resentment, bitterness, and anger. Remember, forgiveness is not overlooking wrongs, which sometimes can be good. It is also not erasing wrongs that were done. It's not the same as forgetting. Forgiveness is predicated on a wrong being done and letting go of the anger that follows. In both instances, we actually see Joseph call out his brother's sins, and he doesn't mince words. He flat out says, you planned evil against me. He doesn't say, oh, no big deal. Don't worry about it. He, doesn't, he says, you attempted evil against me. He doesn't try to minimize their sin. When we minimize sin, we also minimize grace and forgiveness as well. On the other hand, when we're able to call out sin for what it is and still forgive, God's grace abounds more. His mercy, his grace, his salvation, his forgiveness will always be more than our sin. It reminds me of the song we sing often on Sunday mornings. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. So look at Joseph. He's fully aware of the evil that his brothers committed against him. But in forgiveness, he places the consequences in God's hands. 
Even more than that, he comforts them and speaks kindly to them. He even commits to caring for them and their children. That is some supernatural transformation. In fact, forgiveness is always bigger than we are. It is always beyond our human capability. But in Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, godly forgiveness and the forgiveness it brings, the freedom it brings, is available to all of us. Not just to give, but also to receive. In the first section, we get to see God's faithfulness and honoring his promises to Jacob. Then we saw the forgiveness of the horrific sins Joseph's brothers committed against him. Finally, let's look at hope. Verse 22. Joseph and his father's families remained in Egypt. Joseph lived 110 years. He saw Ephraim's sons to the third generation. The sons of Manasseh's sons, Machir, were recognized by Joseph. So this again was a sign of a sign, a proof of God's faithfulness. In ancient Hebrew culture, seeing your grandchildren was the sign of God's favor. But here we see Joseph not only getting to see his grandchildren, but his great-grandchildren. And even more, he's able to get to know them. It says they were recognized by him. This means he wasn't just alive when they were, but that he was able to be around them and enjoy them. I read this and think about my grandparents. I have been fortunate enough to know all of my grandparents. Most of them are passed away now, but I still have my one surviving grandma, Eason. And obviously, I've known her most of my life. And this may come as quite a shock, but I, when I was a kid, I was pretty difficult. I remember this one time, my little sister fell asleep on the floor, and my cousin Mark and I thought it would be really funny to do that shaving cream prank. You know, the one where you put shaving cream in their hand and then tickle their face, and they like smack it and get shaving cream all over the place? Yeah, we thought that would be a good idea. So we decided to, to move ahead with this. Mark even found a feather. But the only problem was we couldn't find any shaving cream. So next best option, rubber cement. It worked just like the movies. But I'm pretty sure she was still getting that out of her hair for weeks. And I think my mom even had to cut some of it to get it out. Uh, yeah, we came really close to dying that day. Anyways, <laughs> guaranteed, every family gathering, Mark and I would get together and cause some sort of mischief. So my grandma Norma would yell at us, but she would never yell just our name. She did that thing where you yell just the string of names of all the cousins, you know, in order of everybody. Mark, Brian, Chip, 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 And by the time she got to us, we were long gone. However, because of the relationship we had, she always knew who the guilty parties were and how to make us pay. But we also always knew that Grandma Norma loved us. So similar to Joseph, he saw his descendants. He got to know them and probably knew their shenanigans. They were recognized by him. Verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land that he swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath. When God comes to your aid, when God comes to your aid, you carry my bones up from here. Joseph died at the age of 110. They embalmed him and placed him in a coffin in Egypt. God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land. When this happens, do this. That's hope. This isn't just some passing pie in the sky. Well, God said he would get us out of here, so I hope he does it cool. No. We commonly use the word hope to mean some sort of unattainable wish that we think would be great. 
But biblical hope is better defined as the confident expectation, expectation of what God promises. So because of that, because of that true hope's strength is not found in circumstances, but in God's faithfulness. So Joseph is, is saying, it's certainly going to happen. We are leaving eventually, and since it's going to happen, don't even go through the trouble of burying me here. Remember, Dad? Make sure my body is travel-ready too, because we aren't going to be here forever, and I want you to take my body back like we did with him. Again, that's language of a man who has been transformed by God. He has seen God's faithfulness through trials and in fulfilling his promises. He's seen his sovereignty in taking shape in all things in Joseph's life, including the evil things, but turning those things for good for not only Joseph, but his family and nations. So now he lives on a whole nother level. He lives from hope in the very same God that he will do exactly what he promised. And we know he wasn't wrong. God was and is always faithful. We look back ourselves and see the countless other Bible heroes that came and went and were powerless to save us. But God, but God who is faithful made a way in Jesus. So I'm not even going to try and pick up the rest of the Infinity War reference that I started back earlier. It peters out pretty quickly, and then I have to start assigning some character similarities, and it just, it's a whole mess. Tony Stark is not Jesus, don't worry. <laughs> but I do want to sum this up today. We talked about three main themes that tie Joseph's story together, as well as the book of Genesis as a whole, faithfulness, forgiveness, and hope. We saw that Jacob trusted God who, faith, who was faithful to do what he promised. We saw the brother's need for confession and how it can lead to healing. We saw Joseph's forgiveness from the trust in God and living humbly under his authority and power. And we saw Joseph's hope in God to, that brought assurance that good will happen, that he is sovereign and faithful and he will do what he promised. And while Joseph's story is a great example of these things, we see the perfect example in Jesus. We see the hero that all of creation has been longing for finally come to save us. Like the brothers, we have the need for con confession. And I challenge you, I challenge you, confess your sins. It is so freeing. For some of us, this may start with a spouse or a family member or a godly friend or some other form of trusted, wise, godly community. But no matter what, this needs to happen between us and Jesus. This is essential. I see so many people in my job and in my personal life living like the brothers, bound up and tormented by unconfessed sin that Jesus already paid for. This is what we lost in the garden. The freedom to stand completely undressed and unashamed before the living God. Jesus fixed that. Come to him. Come to him in raw honesty. Be real before God. He already knows everything about you anyway, and that does not change the way he feels about you. Listen, the enemy calls you, the enemy knows who you are and calls you by your sin. Jesus knows your sin and calls you his beloved. Hear me. In fact, if there's nothing else that you remember today, remember this. God loves you, and he wants to be with you. The best part of confession isn't freedom. It's the forgiveness that follows. It's being united with God again. 
In 1 John 1.9, the Apostle John writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Like, just, like Joseph, who suffered unjustly but forgave, Jesus lived perfectly and sinlessly and died to pay a price that we deserve to pay and then rose again. And in him, we can and will find complete and total forgiveness for our sins if we ask. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.